Okay, I got a funny story about okay, the 757. So our head of operations guy, Mike Bowdy, he he was the one who filled out the roster online. Yeah. And one of the things that the commentators would always say is, so I have this longboard that I ride around. Yeah, they always say, Riley Sorton, he's a skateboarder. He's an avid skateboarder. Right. And they get it right off the bio there. After they say seven foot four Riley Sorton, they say he's an avid skateboarder. <laughs> and like, okay, so I can ride a longboard. Like, I have an electric longboard I ride around and stuff like that. And Which is a great visual, by the way. Oh, yeah. And like, that's imagine you like around <laughs> campus, like. <laughs> but um, I did not want that on there anymore. And he's like, okay, I'll take that off the bio so the commentators don't say that. If you let me put you down a seven five, I'm like, dude, I'm not seven five. And he's like, with your shoes oh, on, with my shoes on, I guess. But I'm seven four. I don't need to be any taller. So I didn't <laughs> want the skateboard anymore. So I had to stick with seven five. I think they were trying to freak out the opponents. Like, good grief, this Riley Sword guy's seven five. Is he even what human? are we gonna do? <laughs> everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, we've got a couple of interesting stories for you. One comes from a good friend of mine, a former basketball player at the University of Washington named Riley Sorn. When Riley told me he'd just gotten engaged, I was really excited about that and want to try to help him out. So we set him up with one of our best salesmen, Mike Guidus, to tackle what would be considered a sizable challenge as we fit him with the perfect suit for his wedding. Until my senior year, I was the tallest basketball player in the NCAA. And it's just challenging because, you know, you can get something off the shelf and they can try and tailor it in and it just never looks quite right. And it just, it, it's just always been, you know, horrendous. But before we hear that story, I want to introduce you to another man of epic proportions, a very successful and influential business leader, former president and CEO of the Gucci Group, and chairman of Tom Ford, Domenico DeSole. If you happen to catch the 2021 film House of Gucci, starring Lady Gaga and Adam Driver, based on the dramatic real-life events of the Gucci family, then you also caught an interesting glimpse into the life of Domenico de Sole. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Born in a small Italian town to a general of the Royal Army, Domenico grew up knowing nothing about fashion and says it's a 1 in 20 billion chance that he wound up where he is today. Beginning his career as a lawyer after graduating from Harvard Law School, Domenico eventually entered the employee of one Rodolfo Gucci at a chaotic time when the family was fighting over shares of the business. Through a series of extraordinary events, Domenico landed a much larger role in the company, taking over as CEO of the Gucci Group, ultimately saving it from near bankruptcy. Simultaneously, Domenico championed a promising new up-and-coming fashion designer from America by the name of Tom Ford. And after leaving Gucci, Domenico helped Tom build his own brand from scratch, nurturing the company into a multi-billion dollar business. That seems like enough to earn Domenico a place in the Fashion Hall of Fame. And as his people told me, he is largely considered the godfather of the luxury designer business. 
but it still doesn't even scratch the surface of his impact on the industry. Our conversation took place at an annual convention for the National Retail Federation, and we had a limited time to speak on stage. But quite honestly, you couldn't cover half the stuff this man has done, even if he had all day. But we managed to cover a lot of ground in our chat. I've been really lucky to get a chance to actually know Domenico a bit over the years, and he's really an amazing guy. So settle in for a taste of the incredible life of Domenico De Sole. Welcome to the live recording of the Nordy Pod from NRF 2023, retail's big show. Please welcome to the stage, President and Chief Brand Officer at Nordstrom and host of the Nordy Pod, Pete Nordstrom, with special guest, Chairman of Tom Ford International, Domenico De Soleil. Wow, okay. Here we are with our 2,000 closest friends having a little intimate chat. I cannot good. see them, but they look great. Yeah. You know, the premise of this whole thing is we have this podcast, which you've probably never heard of, but now you have, so that's good. Maybe get a few more listeners here. But as you can probably guess, I'm not a professional interviewer, and that brings its own amount of uh, anxiety when I do these things, interview people, but to do it in front of a few thousand people and without a net, I I feel like I have to apologize in advance. Who knows what's gonna happen here, but uh, I'm super happy that Domenico's agreed to um, participate and be a part of this. You know, we agreed to do this deal and record as part of a podcast before we actually had a guest. <laughs> and they were like, okay, now what are we gonna do? And if, if I had to have come up with a list at the beginning of who I could be like on the dream list at the top of the list, Domenico would be right at the top of it. So anyway, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me here. So Domenico's a pretty fascinating guy and there's a lot to cover off. So I kind of want to just get into it. But I think uh, first thing is, getting some idea about your background to create some context, because here you are, even described by your own people as the godfather of the designer and luxury business. You know, how did you come to be that? I mean, you, you, you know, guy from Italy, and so I'll let you kind of take that story about how uh, it came to I, be that was, you got in this business. Yeah, I was thinking about the other day, and uh, I really believe there's one chance in 20 billion. Uh, my family is from a small town in the worst part of Italy. I hope I'm not offending anybody, <laughs> called Calabria. And and um, I, I was born in Italy, grew up in Italy. I had a scholarship to come to the United States and I had the good fortune to go to Harvard Law School. I was a lawyer by training. And then I moved from Cambridge to New York first and then I worked on Wall Street. And then I worked in Washington where I met my wife. You know, she, we married under false pretense. She said that she was willing to move to Europe. I was planning to work in a law firm in, in Europe. But after we got married, she decided she didn't want to go back to Europe. And I said, okay, we'll stay in the United States. And then uh, I career as a lawyer. I met under very unique set of circumstances. At some point, I remember the Gucci family. I became the lawyer of one of the members of the family, Rodolfo Gucci. The, the family was fighting over the ownership of the company and how to divide up the shares amongst the members of the family. So I helped Rodolfo to keep his share ownership. Then, and I became the CEO of Gucci America because Aldo Gucci, one of the members of the family, the real genius that created this immense company with a great name, uh, went to jail for tax fraud. So I became, I ran Gucci America. I had no idea about running a company, but I said, well, I'll see what I can do about it. And I did a pretty decent job. The company started doing quite well. Then the son of uh, 
my client, Maurizio Gucci, became the chairman and CEO of the Gucci Worldwide. And much to my chagrin, he turned out to be a terrible business person and ran the company to the ground. So in, uh, at the beginning of the 90s, in 1993, uh, the owners of the company, the bought him out, it was uh, called Investcorp, a private equity company called Investcorp. They called me up and said, how's your Italian? I said, okay, so can you move to Italy? This is a disaster. We don't know what to do with this company. So I arrived there and I learned the greatest lesson in life that is much better to be lucky than be smart because this young designer that, Maurizio wanted to fire, called Tom Ford. And I didn't fire him. I said, well, why, why do we want to fire him? I was running Gucci America. Maurizio, even though he was the chairman and CEO of the entire company, could not fire Tom because Tom technically was my employee in the United States. So I called him Beskirp and I said, look, why are we firing this guy? He seems to be he's pretty competent. So uh, I didn't fire him. And, uh, and then at some point I started moved to Italy, turned the company around pretty quickly. And uh, so they asked me, who do you want as a creative director? And uh, at that point, there were only two possible people left because the company really, really running out of money. And I made the right decision in hiring Tom. I never forget, I drove up from Florence, I went to Milan, Tom was a kid in early 30s, and I said, Tom, I think we can, this is a great company, I say, it's an immense name recognition. We are in a unique situation because the company did, look, 150 million, it was really down, run to the ground, but at the most amazing name recognition on a worldwide basis. So, and Tom was very concerned. He said to me, oh, no, no, they're gonna sell the company. I said, well, it doesn't matter, I said. Either we fix it, and we're going to be very successful or the company is going to be sold, but we have very little to lose. And I made a pact. I said, you design, I run the company. The only thing I ask you, don't be late with a collection. Otherwise, I will start designing and it will be a total catastrophe. And we made a deal and, and then we took it from there. And nine and a half years later, we sold the company for $10.5 billion. Yeah, there's... Look, there's so much to unpack there, and I'm going to do the best I can. And I'm sure some of the people seeing the movie House of Gucci, which you're probably running through your mind how this all comports with that. But, you know, obviously it was a very uh, colorful situation that happened there. I mean, to the extent they made a movie out of everything. But I'm thinking to myself, here's a guy who's a tax attorney that all of a sudden is in the middle of not only a super complicated business issue with a family-run business that's not doing well and an investor coming in and then you've got in this industry that's also about creativity and art where that collides with commerce so i'm just trying to imagine what it had to have been like for you in those early years at gucci and just all the way through i mean to your point i mean and we talked about this before we came up here what was it in the mid 90s the company was literally insolvent yeah. when you got in there and by the time you know you exited the company was worth $10 billion. I mean, there's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of excitement, let's put it that way. Clearly, had a huge battle at some point with LVMH. They were trying to take over the company. So there were nine supremely exciting years. But I think what we did with Tom, first of all, we got along great together. And we struck a very, very unique balance between art and commerce. And I was very blessed. First of all, Tom is a, is a real genius. But also, Tom is a very intelligent business person, he's a very good in business mind. So I think we were able to really balance the 
you know, the, the art with the, with the commerce. And, you know, it, it, it was a huge success. And then also what happened to us, which made my life very difficult, but very interesting as part of the battle with LVMH, the new partner of Gucci became PPR, Francois Pinot, now called Caring, the company's mm -hmm. called Caring now. And they give us $3 billion to, and we have amazingly profitable Gucci was. So putting our profitability with the $3 billion, our goal was to create a luxury brand as opposed to one brand. So in a very quick, it was really a lot of work because very quickly we bought a lot of great brands. We bought Yves Saint Laurent, we bought Bottega Veneta, we bought uh, Alexander McQueen, Stella McCartney, et cetera. So very quickly, in very in few years really, we went from being one company, one brand, to a luxury group with a lot of great brands that since then have done very, very well. So. so Going back to that time, how did it feel for you, else, again, that you came from where you came from with probably no expectation you were going to end up in the fashion business? Is it, you know, to your point, you're one of 20 billion chance of yeah. here you are, and like, again, this training is a tax attorney, and you're in the middle of this kind of hurricane of, of stuff. I'm just curious about how it all struck you in terms of where you found yourself, because I'm I'm not sure that was maybe part of your original plan. I mean, when you were a young man going to law no, no, school, no, no. did father, you envision yourself being in this absolutely place? Absolutely. My father was in the military. My father was a general in the army. So I have no connection with fashion. I don't know what fashion meant. But I thought it was very exciting. But also there is a lesson there. Because sometimes I ask me, I'm giving a lot of lectures at school. A lot of people, uh, good, smart business people, are very curious about fashion and especially people in finance. And one thing I did learn, you have to either you're creative or not creative. I cannot be Tom Ford. I recognize that. But if you're smart and you pay attention, you can learn a lot. So what happened through the year, if I look at myself, if I see a collection, I can tell you it's a good collection or it's a bad collection. It takes me one second to figure it out. With, so when, what, what makes that a good collection or bad collection in your mind when you say I you I don't know how to explain it to you, but okay. I see it. If I see it, okay. I can tell you. But if somebody says, okay, you think it's a bad collection, you do it, I have no clue. Yeah. So that you have to be Tom Ford to do that. But at least you learn. You learn about stores. You learn about there's something can be learned. You don't have to be a creative person to learn about creating, about merchandise, line of size. How do you want your stores to look? You know, the consistency that to exist if you have a luxury brand. And most important in luxury, what you have to have is amazing discipline. We started Tom Ford 15 years ago, and uh, and at the beginning. Tom and I put a lot of our money, a lot of money we made at Gucci put into the company, and every, a lot of retail people calling us to carry the collection. But we wanted to be really create the first true American luxury brand. So we were unbelievably disciplined. You know, we didn't have wholesale for the beginning. We just wanted do everything internally, make sure every product was special. Everything was made in Italy. Our company is an American company. Our headquarters in New York, but every product is made in Italy. So we are unbelievably disciplined people. It was rewarded in 15 years, we went from zero to sell the company $2.8 billion last month. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. You know, Domenico gave me a little bit of a homework assignment before we did this, is you gotta watch this McQueen, Alexander McQueen documentary. And um, being the business familiar with that story and everything, I watched it and I, I watched it really through the context of knowing I was gonna talk to you about it. And again, to me, this whole idea about how 
art and commerce and all the practical parts of the business kind of collide. And as a person that grew up in retailing, it always felt like the designer part of the business to us was something that lived off to the side and was different from the day-to-day -day part of what we did. Maybe that's because we didn't carry a lot of it, but it also struck me too that it was so much of what designer was, if you kind of go back pre these times, it was like really expensive clothes for old people. And it was, it was a more, much more of a niche business, at least in the US. And so what I'm interested to know is, you guys took that concept of luxury and everything that goes with it, but you made it something that was appealing and relevant to the modern world. Was that like a conscious thing that Tom did? Yes, that this was the idea. In fact, we're really at the very beginning where we started with Gucci. The idea was really to take this brand that it really is in disrepair. You know, Gucci was having a real problem when we took over. But the idea was to take this brand and make it exciting, make it new, make it interesting, make it relevant, which Tom did, did brilliant. But and the same thing I remember was that at the very beginning with Yves Saint Laurent. I, at the first collection that we had, uh, Tom struggled. The second collection, what he did, we went to the archives and looked at a great collection of Yves Saint Laurent and reproposed them, like the famous one, the African collection, the, the gypsy collection. Everything was reproposed in a very modern, exciting way. It was a huge success. But let me tell you, I, I have a little bit of a different view. I, I think the luxury and fashion in some, is something that is very, very much part of the human nature. One of the stupidest things I ever heard, and I heard it many times, people, something horrible would happen in the world. They say, fashion is dead, luxury is dead. It's not true. If you're in the caves, you see women 10,000 years ago with earrings and bracelets. That's part of human nature. Everybody wants to look better than you really are. That's, so this is never going to change. A fashion is sort of one interpreted this to a very elevated level, and that's part of human nature. So that is the other stupidest thing that we heard recently, all of us, was that retail was dead, no more stores. Everything is going to be online. It's nonsense. People love to go to the stores. You know, stores are exciting. And on top of the stores is a brand. If you talk to me and you ask me about Chanel, I can tell you the story of Chanel. I was a friend of Karl Lagerfeld. I can tell you everything. But most people, Chanel is a store. The store is the brand. It represents what you're all about. And I think that fashion is very exciting. And it, one thing is about the great design, all the great houses, a great designer, is to have a consistent, a strong point of view. Something I may not like, but there is a point of view. All the great brands have one thing in common. When you go to the store, you understand. There is a message, you understand. That's what it's all about. That was this brand. And I think the great brands have something really in common that's really continuous, it's properly interpreted, and can always be rejuvenated. But uh, I think that fashion is great and is here to stay. And I think you now, I see your company is changing with fashion. I think you have a unique heritage at Nostrum, which is amazing, which is great reputation for service. And that's, it is one of the most important thing also in high-end luxury. You know, the experience in the store, the service is unbelievably important. So you already have that, you know, to build on. And the second thing, which I really love is visual merchandise. And Tom and I been, I learned from Tom actually, been really obsessed about that to make sure that when you enter your store, you don't see a cash register, but you see a beautiful 
mannequin or a beautiful product to make sure all the line of sights are perfect. So there's something really exciting about it. So the Tom Ford years, okay, you, he left and then started his own brand and then no, you... No, no, we left together. You left together. We left together the same day. Uh, we left Gucci in May of 2004. And it was very traumatic because Gucci had been such a part of my life, a part of Tom's life. But when that happened, I was already 60 years old. So I said, well, this life, I'm gonna retire. But Tom came to visit me and said, look, you are 60 years old, which is, and Tom is, Tom is 17 years younger than I am. I said, well, you can retire, but I'm too young. I cannot retire. So uh, I look at, I said, well, what I'm going to do now? I, I've been very happily married now for 48 years, but you know, my wife tells me what to do all the time, not in business, but in real life. I said, what am I going to do? Spend all my time fighting with my wife. Doesn't seem to be very appealing. So I went back. She's not here, is she? No, no, no. Okay. Are you kidding? I wouldn't say this. <laughs> so, uh, so what happened? So I decided, Tom really convinced me to go back to business. And what we did at the very beginning, I felt was very important to generate revenues, to invest in the company, aside from investing our own money. So we had two licenses, one with Estee Lauder for cosmetic and perfume, and one with an Italian company called Marcoline for eyewear. In fact, I see you. That's right. You wear a beautiful eyewear. You, you, re you noticed and, that. Um, and then what happened, and so that was the start, and then 15 years ago, we opened our first store. It was a men's store in Manhattan on uh, 70th and Madison. That was our first store. We started with men's because, uh, uh, let, let's put it this way, I love the fashion press, but when we were at Gucci, with opening on the store, Yves Saint Laurent doing all the fashion show, the members of the fashion press made our life very difficult all the time. So we decided to start just with men's. And we did men's for the first four years. And then Tom was sort of eager to, to do women. So then we started women's four years later. Yeah, well, it's, it's incredible because you think about just the entrepreneurial journey of that, really starting it from nothing and, you know, having just sold your, your company to Estee Lauder, that was in the news very recently, to, for something like $3 billion. I mean, it's just super impressive. I mean, you've done this now a couple times. You've taken, but that's well, what, one created from nothing, one was something you had to resurrect. But, but that's it. I'm 79 years old, and I sign a non-compete, so I cannot even talk to fashion people. Oh, okay. Well, look at I'm impressed. I'll I mean, be fighting it's, with my wife for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really been remarkable what you've been able to do there and the success that you've had. Um, you know, I want to ask a little bit about, and we've talked about it a little bit here, but the, the evolution of the designer and luxury business. And I wonder from your point of view, how much that's evolved. Because to me, it's evolved a lot. When I said before that I used to think about it per perhaps naively, that it was really expensive clothes for old people. But if you think about how designer now how it's out there in popular culture and the zeitgeist because of celebrity and the way the internet and, and the way people dress and to your point, having that inspiration out there and available in a way that becomes a real thing for all kinds of people, whether that means what they can afford as a lipstick or the glasses or whatever, yeah. not necessarily a, a suit or something, but can you speak a little bit to yeah. that? Well, historically, you know, the big thing in fashion was probably you're referring to haute couture. 
which I remember as a kid, you know, horticulture was very big in Europe, but there was really very selected, very few people uh, that could afford it. And so it was just a business done for a very small, supremely wealthy elite. And that obviously changed with the, uh, with the arrival. Two things really changed. One, going from hot couture to ready to wear. Ready to wear became much more important. And the other thing that really was at a really explosion in the, 90, in the 80s and the 90s was accessories. Accessories became yeah. unbelievably important. In fact, one of the, when we started with Tom and we were trying to send this message to everybody that Gucci was changed. We're just going to be new. It's going to be a new, exciting Gucci. We didn't think about, uh, at least I didn't, we were not thinking very much about ready-to-wear because of markdowns, etc. I was thinking about accessories. I said, this is a great way to get the accessory going. And you guys had a heritage in leather goods anyway. Exactly, so. with a great business, a great tradition. And what was very interesting, that the first year, we had very limited budget. We had, I think, $9 million budget marketing. And we did something very courageous that drove our investor insane. We spent the entire amount showing ready to wear. Because in a way, it was a way for us to say, I know we are an accessory house, but we want to show we are new, we are exciting. So the, the entire budget was spent in ready to wear, much to the chagrin of our investors at the time that didn't know what we were doing, but they hoped that we would turn the company around, which we did. We were talking about that a little bit earlier when we were talking about the McQueen business, how you were saying that, you know, the, the extravagant way he was trying to present his brand, which obviously became an enabler for him to be able to sell yeah. accessories and all that stuff. Yeah. Was, was that a conscious thing? Yeah. Oh, for us, absolutely. We yeah. really were very clear that the money was going to come to us through accessory, and we felt that ready to wear a Gucci was the best way to to support and relaunch the accessories. So we were the first one that did that. And then following us, LVMA, Louis Vuitton hired uh, Marc Jacobs to become the Tom Ford or Louis Vuitton. So there was a very conscious decision. Uh, McQueen was a different person. I think McQueen is probably, Lee McQueen is probably the most creative person I ever met. Supremely creative. I remember the one thing I sort of enjoyed doing I was like his editor when uh, he left LVMH and came to work with us, which was really great for him. He loved us. We got along great. We were much more of a fashion company that were not bureaucratic at all. So, and he loved working for us. And I remember before every fashion show, I would go and watch. He would show me the day before, two days before the show, was showing me the collection. And he was not a very good editor, but he was supremely creative, so it's all these accents. And I remember, Lee, okay, I got the point. I see this look is very good, but enough. You don't need to do it three times. Cut it off and bring a new look. And he was really great. I, I, I really was very depressed when he killed himself a few years later. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very sad story. Tell me a little bit, and, and perhaps this would be interesting for others there, retailers, from the brand side of things, what is it that you're looking for in a retailer so that you could actually have a partnership and go beyond a transactional relationship to something that you can grow a business together? Okay, there are two things. There is one thing I really like about wholesale. It might be obvious to look from my own point of view, my own retail and wholesale for a brand. I'm a true believer. I'm 79 years old. 
So every morning I look myself in the mirror and I think I'm really good looking because I'm used to see myself, okay? And companies, especially fashion companies, they're a little bit sometime, oh, this is a great design, everybody loves the design, so everybody, the collection is presented and everybody's, oh, this is fantastic. Sometimes not that fantastic. And having people from the trade, real professional people from, let's say, Neymar Marcus, Norsum, Sachs, the really great retailer, I think brings some sense of reality into the thing because they've seen the other products. You know, I see every brand, they are so enamored of what you're doing. You love your designer, you love what we stand for. And so every, this very inbred culture, all the stores come, you know, when I was in Gucci, every, all the stores would come to Florence, or our store, we had a lot of stores, hundreds of stores, they would all come to, for the buy, so-called buy, to Florence to buy the collection. But they're all our own people, so, Obviously, they loved Tom, and they thought everything was wonderful. So I always like to hear from the, our colleagues and partners in the trade and say, well, you've seen every other collection. You've seen every other fashion show. Is the collection really great? What do you think? So I think there can be a great partnership there because you can get very good input when, from good buyers. And that, I think, is a very, very healthy situation, which you sort of check what you're doing. And then people, they've seen every other brand, so they have a better sense of what you, you know, how your collection really stands, not only on its own, but compared to the other luxury brands. Is it also true, the data that we have, because we're selling all these different things, that it gives you a, a different indication of really what's working, what's not, and, and in context yeah. with the people you compete with yeah. most directly? Yeah, it, it really helps us. First of all, obviously, we have the, you know, the moments of truth when the collection shows up in our own stores, where it sells or not. That's number one. But also, it's very good to talk to, to our colleagues in the wholesale, in our wholesale part of the business, because you have some really excellent, excellent buyers with a lot of experience. They come from a different point of view sometimes, you know. And I think it's always very important to hear other people's view, especially people that are very professional and very competent, and they see in the entire industry. So tell me, what, what are you most proud of that you've accomplished in your career? In business? Sure, well, whatever. Go for it. But in life, I have two wonderful daughters, so I'm a very proud father of my children, and that's the most important thing for me. Uh, the second, I'm personally, I married against the same woman for 48 years, which is an amazing achievement. And in business, I really think that uh, I'm very proud of my friendship with Tom Ford. I think I was blessed to probably deal with the greatest creative person in the last, for sure, 50 years. And, you know, it done something really um, in a way, they will last. I think the way we work together and blended, as you say, art and commerce, it's been a very, very exciting thing. And, and most important, we trained a lot of great people. You know, I saw my old people, you know, to give you an example, one of the person who worked for us, uh, Nicolas Jusquier now is the creative director of Louis Vuitton. You know, there are a lot of people in the industry that work with us. So there are a lot of great, great people that work with us that have made them successful as well. You know, and at the end, the, my legacy is going to be, our legacy is going to be what up Gucci and Tom Ford. So I've done my part. Well, you certainly had. You've had an amazing, amazing run. So the last question I have for you, and this is a selfish one, what advice do you have for me, for Nordstrom? You, you know, you're doing business with us. We're all in this world where things have evolved a lot and it's a yeah. competitive industry. What advice do you have for us? Okay. 
You want to know the truth? <laughs> Go for it. Yep. No, I think that, first of all, that's true for every company. You look at what's your background, what makes you special. And in your case, the service is always be legendary. I, I love to go to stores. I go to your stores. I lived in Washington at some point. Even before I just started in this industry, I love to go to your store because everybody say, go to Nordstrom, go in the shoe section and just watch, which I did. And that was amazing. I would say that what you're doing is very exciting about elevating your, you know, your customer experience in your stores and bringing uh, great brands. I really do believe the next piece, because one piece you have, which is service. The second thing is visual merchandising. I see the, the really important thing, what I would do for you, I would be a huge amount of attention on my stores look to make sure that when people come in, there is a sense of elegance in your store that I think is going to make a lot of difference for you. If you combine a great visual experience, visual merchandise, with great service, you really is an unbelievable formula for success. All right. Well, I really appreciate it. And we're at the end of our time, but I just want to say how much I appreciate you being willing to do this. You're a good guy. Um, I, I'm glad I Thank know you. you and. Um, I'll continue to lean on you for advice, uh, but thanks for sharing your, your background, your history. It's really sensational. Congratulations to you, Domenico. Thank, Thank you, you very much. All right, now we're going to switch gears, and quite a bit, to hear from my good friend, Riley Sorn. We met through a mentorship program while Riley was playing basketball for my alma mater, the University of Washington. Now, if you've ever met Riley in person, one thing you'll notice right away is that he is very tall. And not just, oh yeah, he plays basketball tall. I mean, he will likely be the tallest person you have ever met in your life, standing at an incredible seven foot four inches. And any relatively tall person, like myself, would tell you that it can sometimes be tricky to find clothes that fit you just right. For Riley, it can be nearly impossible. So when Riley broke the news that he was getting married, I asked him, where are you going to find a suit? Long story short, I hooked him up with one of our best salesmen, Mike Guidas, who you'll also hear from this story to make sure Riley was looking good for the biggest day of his life. So, um, you know, the lead off for the Nordy Pot is always in, and I'm introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life. And so, actually, I have one of the fascinating people in my life here today I want to talk to, and that's Riley Sorn. So, Riley, thanks for being on the Nordy Pod. Thanks for having me. Our story goes, let's see if I can create the setup here. Um, I think it's been mentioned that I uh, played basketball, and I'm actually I'm been a mentor on the University of Washington basketball team. And so, I got paired up a couple years ago with Riley Sorn, who uh, from Richland was on the Husky basketball team for four years. Mm-hmm. But um, something uh, about you that, you know, if anyone meets you in person, it's the first thing they're going to recognize is this guy's really tall. And to put this in context, you're seven foot four. So I'm a tall guy. I'm six, seven. And I know for myself that almost a day doesn't go by where someone doesn't comment about my height. I mean, a total stranger in some way. I got to say, you know, for you, you're seven foot four. And how has that just informed, you know, growing up and, and just your place in the world and, and how people respond to you? Because you, you're not an inconspicuous guy. <laughs> yeah, I think 
it could have formed me to be one of two people a really bitter just hate the world kind of guy with every because you see i mean you see some really amazing people who come up to you and we have great conversations what do you mean like other tall people come other up tall to people you? or other people <laughs> who are just curious and they'll come up and be really polite and nice about it yeah. and then the other i don't know it's it's not the majority of people who will come up and just be really rude and it's you know for what reason yeah. so we live by a bar and i park my volvo out by the bar and I'm always working on that thing. It, Pete let me use his... He likes to work on cars. Yeah. He's into that. And so, so I'm always out there in the parking lot working on it. And so I'll be working on it. And people multiple times have come up and like want to start like picking fights. You know, it's like 9 o'clock. And they'll be out after the bar. They're already drunk. <laughs> and they just want to be like, you think you're old. It happens like a few times. So how do you diffuse that? Yeah, I just kind of like play with their ignorance a little bit. I play with their drunk so I can out-talk them. I can outsmart them a little bit. And so I'm just like, I have the reach. I could probably beat the shit out of you, but I don't want to fight you right now. Like, I, okay, why would you? I might even play into their ego. Like, nah, dude, you beat the shit out of me. Yeah. Like, why would I want to fight you and just let it, ha like, stuff happens like that sometimes, which is kind of weird. And so it's easy to get bitter about it. And it's easy to just kind of have that, that wall up and just be rude to everyone. But I kind of take it as, hey, it's everyone's first time seeing someone this tall. Everyone has a different reaction to it. And so, like, if I'm just going to be super rude to you, that's not going to, like, what, what's that going to accomplish, you, you know? Like you try to disarm it. Are you, like, are, do you have this ability to, like, say, okay, now that that has been said, there's something I can say to kind of get over it and we can move on to just oh yeah oh yeah stuff. so well i you know it kind of depends on person to person if i'm in a good mood i'll i'll entertain it if i don't have anything to do you know i'll talk to them they everyone has a nephew who's seven eight everyone does seven eight huh? everyone does <laughs> they oh, say, you know oh, there's yeah, this <laughs> there's this boyfriend i had in college and he was eight feet tall and he would pick and you me up and, and the answer is no you didn't uh, oh really that's really great that's good for you like i mean <laughs> you get the story well, the you know? thing that i've noticed is like if someone's over six feet tall it becomes they have no context for it so like for example if people say how tall are you if I were to tell someone I'm seven foot four, a lot of people would say, yeah, okay. Because they have no idea what that even means. I mean, yeah. once you're over six feet, you might as well be seven foot four. Yeah. Man, like, how many tough. people so, in this country are over seven foot tall? I don't know. We, Not I, there's got to be a, a way to look that up. I, I know the... I'm sure there is. I was the... I was... Until my senior year, I was the tallest basketball player uh, in the NCAA. You I was were. This, I was the tallest one in the whole NCAA. But yeah. I don't... I have no clue. I've never met anyone my height before. Never. It would scare the so heck you, out of me if I did. So you've played against all kinds of people all over the place. Like, what's the tallest person you've played against? Um, one of my teammates my freshman year, Brian Penn Johnson, was 7'1". Um, but I've never seen anyone this this tall. But the, the funny thing is people don't know... Okay, so my wife's 6'1", and so we look kind of normal together, and a guy will you walk guys do, up. I was looking at those wedding pictures again, and you guys look great together. I mean, it doesn't, yeah, I mean, you're, she's, and she was wearing high heels, she's, she's tall, yeah. and you're tall, and... It was perfect. Yeah, it looked great. It was perfect. Yeah, but we're going to have some freak beast kids, that's for <laughs> sure. But, um, no, people people walk up, and they're like, you know, I thought I was tall, and I'm 6'3", yeah. and they walk up, and they're shorter than Kiki, and I'm like, okay, come yeah. on, guy. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't know the, what the statistic is for it, but it's it's pretty rare it's yeah. pretty rare so it was fun for me 
to get to know you and to actually have a connection on the team other than just being an alumni pulling for a team it's like anything else if you know people on the team it makes it more interesting it was it was really fun watching you and and we talked a little bit about you know your height and everything one thing that really struck me was no matter if I was watching on TV no matter when you came in the game or when you did anything it was always it wasn't just Riley Soren it was Seven foot four, Riley. Sorry. Oh, yeah. you notice that? You're oh, never, you're never just Riley. Sorry, it's a novelty, Pete. It's, it's a like, novelty. Yeah, seven foot four, Riley. Sorry, look at that. Oh, it's seven foot four, Riley. Sorry, towering over the competition. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, it was it was really fun to watch you play. But you know, you, you talked about your college experience, and and we have this relationship. And then you know, when you were a senior, you said to me, "He goes, you know, I'm getting married." I'm like, whoa, wow, <laughs> okay. And yeah, so, yeah, it was over so, 4th of July when we, when yeah. we told you, yes. Yeah, so it's like, well, that's a big deal. So talk a little bit about that, because that really brings us, I think, to the thrust of this story. So Yeah, so I met my wife in bio class at the beginning of sophomore year. I didn't and know that. So, I, th- yeah. I assumed you guys maybe met at the crew house because, you know, you, you guys would eat no, there No, yeah, and we stuff. were in bio class. And the, the thing is, she walked in and I knew she was, a, I didn't know she was a row. I knew she was an athlete because she's 6'1", just strong as hell. Yeah. And she knew I was a basketball player. Apparently, we'd seen each other in the weight room a few times. Right. And so we actually, she was late, of course. Uh, coming from practice, but uh, she comes in and sits by me and it, it's, you know, rest is history. We hit it off. Fast forward to 2021. We knew it was right. I proposed. And so, yeah, we tell you about, uh, you know, hey, we're going to get married. And it was just kind of sprung on you. I don't remember the context well, of that. I, if you wanna. Yeah. I mean, I knew you guys were a couple and everything, but oh, you're a young guy. I'm like, and I got married old, so I was like, whoa, geez, okay. But anyway, it was, it was all great, and Kiki's awesome, and, you know, I could tell you guys were happy. But so I remember at some point asking, like, when you get married and blah, blah, blah. And then I said, well, what are you going to wear? Because I think every time I'd, I've been around you up until that point, you were probably wearing some type of husky basketball garb. It's like free. A sw- I know, free. Pete, it's well, free. Well, it's free, and it fit you. It like, fit so you me. got shorts and a hoodie or, like, sweats or, like, you know, so, and I'm like, well, what are you going to wear? What are you going to do? And you're like, I don't really know. And so I said, well, you know, I think I pretty much can get you connected with someone that can make a suit that's really going to fit you. And I said that without knowing for sure that we could do it. But I said, the first thing I want to do is I want to get you connected with someone on the floor. They tend to know how to solve the challenges. So I've got with us here this morning, Mike Guidus. How's it going? And Mike is a salesman for us in men's clothing. Now, Mike, you're the person that came up at the top of my mind. Like, I appreciate that. You're a good guy. You've got all this experience. I figured Mike Guidus can provide solutions. So take it from there. You, I think you got a call from me like, hey, look, and I just want to let you know this is coming your way. Yeah, you gave me a heads up a couple of times. We talked about it on the floor. And yeah, finally met with Riley. And what a terrific guy. You know, hugs and handshakes and all kinds of love there. Uh, but first impression was... Uh, we got a job on our hands here. This is not, you know, there's no template for that. Yeah, so, I mean, so you meet the guy and you knew he way. was tall, but when yeah. he actually stood there and shook his hand, like, what was your impression here? Well, my nose is in his sternum. And <laughs> and you're not a short guy. I'm not a short person. <laughs> but Riley would, you know, take a little duck to get under the doorway, to get <laughs> into the fitting room, and certain things that we don't have to do. You yeah. know, he is, his life is different, so... I tried to honor that and not make too much of a spectacle of things, uh, knowing that he's kind of a walking spectacle to a degree. <laughs> I just—he's got a good attitude about that. Oh, he stuff, sure does. Know. No, he called. He said, "I'm a giant." 
Is this the single most difficult or unusual fit of anyone you've ever helped? Yes, he was off the chart on every level. To that point, Riley, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of you actually just being able to buy regular clothes? Yeah, it's always been, you know, horrendous. Um, Yeah, I would have, you know, some dress up clothes and some things like that. But it's so expensive to get things, you know, custom made um, a lot of the time. And it's it's just challenging because, you know, you can get something off the shelf and they can try and tailor it in and it just never looks quite right and it just it, you know it, it's just a big pain shoes are hard everything's just hard to yeah, what size shoe do you wear 18, 18. which which isn't that is it's not crazy big but it's What's still big? it's still yeah. yeah i mean you still go into any store and say show me your selection of 18s this is before i even knew you pete yeah, nordstrom right. rack there you go nordstrom rack has big shoes and it's fantastic ah that's a good plug right there uh, yeah. I, i'm just saying I, I know this is a nordy pod but i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> you, well, no, for all you big feats out there well, but it's, it's so it's part of the story so it's one thing that you know we're friends that I know each other and I'm gonna try to help you out but what's also true here is this is reflective of what we try to do anytime we can it's like you you recognize the customer's got a problem to solve and let's see if we can do that mm-hmm. you know Mike what's probably somewhat different in this case is that I referred him directly to you so I I think it'd be really easy for a guy like that to show up to any store and someone goes we can't help you we don't we don't have that size if he just walked in cold and there's a seven foot four guy, would it have been any different or what would you have said to him? What would that initial conversation have been like? The initial conversation would be, I have a solution. It may not be immediate. We've got a time frame here. It's not something, as you know, that I can do for you right this very second, but let's put aside some time and do this right. And yes, I've got people that are on the every end of the chart, bigger, smaller, taller, slimmer. And if I have enough time, I can fit virtually everyone that walks in. I think the big thing I'm forgetting here, too, is I told you I was getting married in the beginning of July. Uh, Wedding was October 10th, and we didn't even really get started until about August. And so, I mean, from August to October was all run, run, run. And the way you guys could get it done so fast. And to be clear, while I connect you guys, I was involved as like, you know, that's Mike's job. That's what he knows how to do. So he just just took it and ran with it. And so you get a sense of the measurements and the timing and all this stuff. So it's boxed in, right? He's getting married. Mm -hmm. There's a time time And we're going to have to do some special order stuff. And that stuff just doesn't show up in a week. Four to six weeks is kind of the normal turnaround these days. And So how long was your turnaround time for Riley's? I think we're... About four weeks. Okay. Yeah. So you were up against it a little mm-hmm. bit. And vendors are at the mercy of how great your measurements are. So if we take measurements and they're inaccurate, fortunately I'm thorough about it and I haven't had any problems that way, but I've seen made to measure things come in that are absolutely off, no, not even close, after five, six weeks of waiting, then you're really Cause then you start all up over a creek. Again, right? Yeah. How many times did you end up meeting with Riley in person to facilitate all of this? It was four or five. Okay, so four or five times, that's making sure the measurements and all this mm-hmm. stuff. So talk about that whole process. Yeah, it was great. So yeah, we'd come in for an initial fitting and just going through the whole thing was really cool. I mean, I had never been fitted like that before. I had never really been like, you know, gotten measurements done. My my left shoulder is, I don't know, a quarter of an inch higher than my right shoulder. You know, it's funny. I got that thing. I got like a slope shoulder too. So yeah. they sometimes have to put a pad in there. Did you, yeah. Is that what they yeah. do yeah. And so when I've, I have that yeah. too. You know, and they measured that. And so like when I would wear my jersey, I'm always kind of 
cocking my shoulder to get the jersey <laughs> to fit right. And I put this suit on it, you know, after everything's done. I'm like, like it's it's all centered and it feels great. And, it yeah. just, you know, everything's perfect. So, you know, as you got to meet Riley and everything, and first of all, just given his size, he probably has really no experience with buying clothes in this mm-hmm. way. But, you know, he's a young guy from Richland, Washington, that probably never had a lot of occasions to wear suits and stuff. And in the most important moment of his life, getting married, he's placing the trust in us. So what was that like? Did you have to win him over? Or how did that go where you felt like that trust happened? I felt like he trusted me from the start and didn't have any trepidation, maybe didn't know what he was getting into, just trusted that we were the professionals and could do the job right for him. It was just from the ground up. The first day, he was like, hey, we're going to hook you up with the suit. This is going to be, you know, a little project for us. And through the whole way down to the belt, the shoes, everything he walked me through and said, how's this going to go with this and all this kind of stuff. So you know, it wasn't just getting you the size, but it was literally styling. Like, was this styling. is going to look good. This is not yeah, going to look good. Exactly. And, yeah. and he walked me through the whole thing and got me well-versed in men's fashion. And, and it was it was great. I learned a lot. And it was a really, I think it was a fun project to, you know, go through. And it was a new challenge for Mike. I know that for sure. Yeah. And I was really proud of those guys. They, they took it on as a challenge and a fun challenge. And I know they liked working with you and everything and you know the big payoff of his you know, being at that wedding and seeing you in the suit, and you look great. Thank um, you. <laughs> and you could tell, I mean, when people are in something nice that fits them, it makes them feel good, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I could tell that, you know, that, that it suited you, playing words, uh. it suited you well, you know, put you in a position of confidence and feeling good for, you know, the biggest day of your life, really, getting married. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I think if I would have been in another suit, like, I wouldn't have felt as confident. The way it fit, the way it looked, everything was great, the sh- down to the shoes, those were custom-made. Yeah, so it was Alan Edmonds shoes. Alan right? Edmonds, yeah. yeah, and I I'll still wear those at you know at events and things like that. And those are those are fantastic. Yeah, that's that's they nice. Fit like shoes. Love. Those are well. Here's the deal. Shoes. So you, it's a nice suit. Suits aren't easy for you to get. So it should be motivating for you to not go gain like 50 pounds because you won't exactly. be able to wear that suit if you do exactly. that. You got to stay in basketball shape for the oh, rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Mike, you put a jacket on someone that fits well, and you get to see this all the time. They look at themselves in the mirror and like. Can you talk a little bit about that, like what that just does for their countenance generally? It is fun to see, and I've, I, I have customers from 14, 15-year-olds to our age, and I should say my age. And, uh, <laughs> We're in and the older, same boat there, Yeah, Mike, and older. Much. And uh, ideally, with product knowledge and selecting the right garment, I can walk that person up to the mirror with the proper item on, and they go, oh, wow, you're right. And how do they feel about it? Maybe they stand up straighter, they puff their chest out a little bit and really feel great in that scenario. Maybe visualizing how they're gonna use it and why they came in and you know, then they can start moving forward with the process. Yeah, you think about purchase. it, so much of what you're selling people and selling into people, it's these moments that really matter, these high stakes occasions. It's mm-hmm. graduations, it's job mm-hmm. interviews, it's getting married. What you're selling them all ties back to our mission about making customers feel good and look their best. Mm-hmm. And you're a linchpin to that. Well, thank you for that. The, I think right off the bat, it's in my subconscious to build trust. So truly, I've made a lot of great friends. Some of my best friends are my customers for years. I have multiple families of four generations of doing business with their family. It's just a lot of fun to do, and, and people appreciate the, the service and the one-on-one service that I have to offer. I'm curious how you're going to answer this. I think I know, but um, 
like what brings you the most satisfaction in your job? Like, like what makes for a good day? That's easy. The thank you. Thank you from the customer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so is it really about you know, how you've made someone feel and the connection you Absolutely. made and kind of solving a Absolutely. problem. Absolutely. Maybe be talk bigger, about that It could be big or small and, and the smile on somebody's face and the genuine gratitude. That's really one of the most fun parts of doing this is just really that customer service, that extra effort. I take pride in being able to do that and, and do it well and, and be able to solve these kind of issues. Yes, it's difficult at times, but the piece of the puzzle that makes us special is if we don't immediately have a solution, we find one and solve it. Yeah. Okay, so Mike, look, I just I want to thank you for doing all that you did for Riley. I, I know it meant a lot to him. And uh, thank thanks you. for doing the job you do every day there. I'm glad you can be my go-to guy on this stuff. So thanks so much. I will continue to whenever you want me to. All right. Thanks, all right, Mike. Thank you. So now here you are. You're done with school, done with basketball, and you're finding your way in the world. So That's talk right. a little bit about what you're working on now. So I just got my brokerage license for real estate. So... Hey, anyone out there want to, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not joking, but I, you I, uh, you're the guy as of, as of this recording, I just got it this week. I'm working my way through the corporate world world. There you, and, go. you know, you, another thing that you've done is hooked me up with a lot of people to get me well-versed in the corporate world again. I mean, that's what, why we met each other in the first right. place. And you've done a, a great job in, you know, exposing me to some of these people. You're on your way. I'm on my way. That's right. All right. Well, thanks Riley. I'm going to miss not seeing you on the court this yeah, year. I but, know. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I'm, I'm glad that we've been able to make this connection. I feel like, you know, I've been super fortunate to get you. And uh, I feel like we're friends and we're going to be friends a long time. So uh, thanks for being on the Nordy Pod and best of luck with the real estate career. Yeah, thanks a lot, Pete. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey. And we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you received great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail. And you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with CEO of Seattle Children's Hospital, Dr. Jeff Sparing. I flew here to do my interview. It was a you know, candidate interview of CEO. Flew into SeaTac, got in the taxi, and told the taxi driver, you know, I need to go to Seattle Children's. He immediately starts telling me the story about how Seattle Children's saved his son's life, right? And it's like everywhere you go, hearing stories like this, it's just amazing. Then look at like the decades of, of life and experience and all the things that come with that. And we know what happens today. We have no idea what happens in 20, 30, 50 years. And for us, that's kind of the cool part of this is knowing that whatever we did today, I have no idea what the lifelong impact of that's going to be. You may wonder why I'm talking to the CEO of Seattle Children's Hospital. And I guess its story is really immediate and personal for me and my family. My son found himself needing to spend a lot of time at Seattle Children's Hospital in the first year of his life 
for a host of health issues. And we formed an immense appreciation for what a great community asset Seattle Children's Hospital is. Aside from what Jeff and the hospital has done to make a big impact on my family's life, it's really interesting to hear about the business of running a hospital like this. And from his perspective as a CEO, I think you really find this to be an interesting conversation. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod. Mm-hmm.